the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Another parable Jesus put before the crowds. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, Yes. He said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The Gospel of the Lord. The group of readings we've heard from Scripture this morning are like a summer garden in full bloom, colorful, exuberant. They each draw the eye and interest. I love the colorful story about how Jacob, the trickster, gets tricked. How it recognizes the intricacies of relationships as far back as stories go. You heard it. Jacob loved Rachel, but Leah's eyes were lovely. And even as Laban, the father-in-law, embraced Jacob, the son-in-law, he extracted, you could even say snookered, 14 years of labor from him. Another example of biblical family values, no less complicated than yours or mine or everybody else's. And then the psalm, bouquet of profuse praise, glorious as a field of sunflowers tossing in the breeze. And the vivid similes of Jesus' parable in St. Matthew's Gospel, each of the examples, a standout cattail for a preacher's choosing. But if this group of readings were indeed a garden, then St. Paul's letter to the Romans would be a deep-rooted bush of black red roses in full bloom, whose beauty and fragrance could stop you in your tracks. All right, enough now for the florid metaphors, but I hope they delivered my point. Romans is not to be missed. This epistle has a history. Romans is St. Paul's final letter 
It represents his mature understanding of Christianity, his most fully developed exposition of the gospel of the power of God for reconciliation by grace through faith. Where other letters from Paul went to communities he himself had founded, this letter was sent to a church he had neither founded nor even visited. But there was a flourishing Christian community there among the Jews in Rome. Very possibly, the message of Christ had been brought home by Roman Jews who had been converted at the first Pentecost in Jerusalem. A little more about the history of Romans, or the background, really. In the first century, the community of Jews in Rome was large, diverse, and influential. But in 49, in the year 49, the Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because, in the words of the Roman historian Suetonius, the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. If the Crestus referred to by the historian is a confusion of Christus, Latin for Christ, as many historians suppose, then the expulsion of the Jews by Claudius bears directly on the writing of the letter to the Romans. When the gospel of Christ was preached among Jewish synagogues in Rome, likely disturbances erupted, disagreements about the meaning and the value of Christ. To these disturbances, Claudius responded with his edict, expelling the Jews. Then, when Claudius died not long after, in about in 54, in the year 54, and his edict, edict elapsed, Jews began to return to Rome. But the return of the Jewish Christians to the churches that had become increasingly Gentile in their absence doubtlessly occasioned considerable tensions between them and the Gentile Christians. At the peak of such tensions, a mere three years after the lapse of Claudius's edict, Paul composed Romans in order to declare the gospel as the reconciling power of God, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So, a little bit of the history of, of Romans. But not only does it have a history, Romans has generated history. And how generative in history this essay has been. As a work of philosophical and theological literature, it probably ranks among the most influential essays in Western civilization. Its principles are fundamental to all the major traditions of Eastern and Western Christianity, although they are played out differently in the different traditions. The awesome power of God for reconciliation. God's freedom to reach everyone without regard for human-generated social distinctions. God's unfathomable generosity towards sinners. And not least, 
We all are sinners. All in need of grace beyond our power to earn or grasp. For one example of Romans' historical generativity, 500 years ago, principles drawn from this epistle became the measuring stick by which the Protestant reformers challenged the medieval church. It is God who justifies, they read in Romans, who is to condemn. Applying this to their own situation, they overcame their dread of excommunication from the church. They recognized with new clarity that all are sinners, even churchmen. But God, with infinite freedom from every human power, reaches out to save by grace that we receive just by faith. Mercy does not arrive in indulgences you can purchase, nor in sacraments that can be withheld if you refuse to submit mind and intellect. Let God be God, they cried. God alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Four centuries later, the confessing church in Germany clung to these principles that had new resonance when Hitler's Third Reich ascended to power. While the church establishments, Lutheran and Catholic, colluded with the political regime with an excess of self-protective prudence, some few German Christians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer among them, you may have heard of him, drew back from the crowd, taking courage from the faith expressed in Romans of that God's power transcends every power on earth. Imagine their hearing of these lines. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In the purifying light of the epistle to the Romans, who was Hitler but another insane poser? What was state nationalism but yet another iteration of idolatry? No more than the church can the state pretend to absolute power. The faith steadied by Paul's letter to the Romans subverts human pride that leads inexorably to cruelty and madness. So it's got quite a history. From these examples, I hope to make clear that Romans is important in the history of human affairs. But it's not just history. It is of the moment, our moment. Read from the heart of our own lives, our own lived struggles and earned wisdom. It breathes a message of freedom and hope and reconciliation to each one of us. 
What do you read when you read Romans? From where you live, from what you've known. I see the profound reassurance of the first two lines. Even though we may not know how to pray, what words to use to express the sorrow or anguish or desires of our hearts, the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. An affirmation of hope follows. All things work together for the good. Other ancient translation put it, God makes all things work together for good, or in God. No, in all things, God works for the good. So there is reason to hope even in the darkest hours. And if even in the darkest times, God is working for the good, then it follows That's our task, to do the same. Reassurance and hope are given further reason in the next two lines that speak of God's purposes from before time and forever. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Now, some have extracted from these lines a hard doctrine of predestination, a dogma that some are saved and some are lost from before they were born. But the hopelessness that such a doctrine imposes contradicts the heart of this epistle. Its obvious cruelty shows the human origin of this doctrine. No, here Paul is writing about the providence of God and the purposes of God in and through our lives. God knew you before you were born. God has numbered all your days, written them in God's book, and God will see you all the way to glory. And so, Paul continues, here is where we stand. If God is for us, who is against us? It is God who justifies. Who could condemn? Christ, who put himself between us and the worst the world can do? The same Christ who, in the Spirit, intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, peril, or the sword? No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us from before time and forever. Can I get a witness? (laughs) All right. At this point, I believe that if I were to stop speaking and invite any of you who have a story of justification by grace to give witness, well, there would be a long line up to this pulpit of people ready to speak. And we might hear diversely wonderful stories of reconciliation 
and we might hear, too, of stories that are still incomplete, with reconciliation still a wish, like a sigh too deep for words. But preachers in the Episcopal pulpits are not supposed to turn the tables and and announce an altar call, so I won't put you on the spot right now. But by way of illustration, I will share a story. Growing up as a Catholic child, I thought as a child, understood as a child. My parents were divorced when I was an infant. It was bitter, and my father disappeared from my life. To a child, divorce and abandonment seem like sheer calamity. Not only to a child, my mother, my single mother, struggled financially and emotionally, and in a few years she remarried. Now, in those days, annulments were not available to ordinary Catholics, and divorcees who remarried were automatically excommunicated. So my mother was not allowed to approach the altar. Calamity seemed to be extended into eternity. I watched my mother cry in church. In parochial school and in Sunday sermons, I heard many times that divorced and remarried people were condemned to hell for their supposed moral failings. I, too, cried in my bed many times after the lights were turned off. And I can still remember the feeling of terror and anguish in the pit of my stomach. I think that is why, as a young adult, I became a seeker of religious understanding and moral reconciliation. In retrospect, I can see that I had to go to the heart of that primordial calamity to understand and perhaps to find reconciliation for my family. You could say my life depended on it. In time, I discovered for myself that grace runs most swiftly and surely to those who need it most. I came to embrace the respect for conscience that characterizes the Episcopal Church, where I found freedom from dogma that masks human cruelty in sanctified rules. And when the time was ripe, well after my own sons were grown, I found my natural father. He was a devout Irish Catholic, a career Marine, who had served his country from Iwo Jima to Vietnam. He was old when I found him. His health wasn't good. Mindful that our time was short, our conversations were very direct. He told me that he loved my mother and said emphatically, 
she was a good woman. He said, my dear, I have been with you every day of your life. And I could feel in my bones the truth of that statement. The last time I saw him, he was in the hospital after his final stroke. Mentally, he was slipping the bonds of linear time. So our exchange was like a dance out of time. I thought of it as talking Irish. Where's your mother now? He asked, although when he was well, he knew that she had died 20 years earlier. She's in heaven, I answered. Ah, he exclaimed with evident joy. I'm glad to hear it. I always knew she was going there. Grace alone. Cruel dogmas and rigid ideologies dissipate in the sunshine of grace. There are other stories I could tell that don't yet have a grace-filled ending, and maybe you could too. But especially where grace seems to be absent and mercy is not evident and reconciliation is still a long way off, let's hold close the heartening message of Paul in Romans. God works for the good in all things. No power on earth is stronger than the divine love in which we live and move and have our being. We don't have to earn that love. Christ has already done that once for all. But neither do we grasp it as though it is our right, for it is a gift not earned, but freely given. For we are sinners to whom mercy has been given. And our part is to accept the gift in faith and to pass it along to others. Nothing can separate us from God's love as kind as it is vast. That is all. It's as simple and amazing as that.